I'm Collier Landry, subject of the investigation discovery documentary A Murder in Mansfield. On New Year's Eve 1989, I awoke in the middle of the night to the sound of two loud thuds. The next morning, my mother was missing, but I knew she was no longer alive. No one believed me except one detective. And 25 days later, police found my mother's body buried beneath the basement floor of my father's new home he purchased for his mistress. I had witnessed a murder. And at the age of 12, I testified against my father at his months-long murder trial. He is still incarcerated to this day. I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. So on today's Moving Past Murder, Brenda, I think we're going to finish this letter that my father wrote that we started in a couple episodes back. What do you think? That sounds like a fantastic plan. And again, we have not opened or read this since we opened it for y'all. So um, yeah, let's get to it. Let's do it. So, Brenda, here we have uh, the letter that we didn't finish the other week, and because uh, we only got halfway through it, where my father was, just a recap, was describing the relationship between my mother's sister and her husband, and giving us a brief family history of everyone, uh, which was ended in a very odd statement of, I wouldn't be surprised one day if she killed him. <laughs> yeah. Huh. And just, we were examining his narcissistic and manipulative behavior. I love how he projects. The projection is real. That should be a (laughs) a t-shirt or something. Ooh, I like it. I like it a lot. Yeah, the projection is real. All right, well, we're going to... So it started on the... We finished halfway through this page right here. So we're going to start. There's another page and a half. Exciting. Wow. Exciting things. But this one, just to prepare everyone, is when he describes his relationship and how he met my mother, I believe. I think this is what it is. Yes. Because we started looking at it and I was like, I think this is the letter that I remember from. The last time I saw this letter was 2007, where whenever it's dated, August 2007. Going to put on the, uh, the spectacles, which are broken. Oh, no. They got broken. I don't know. I can't afford to buy a new one. So if anybody wants to throw into the uh, <laughs> bin of like, dollar store, pay, man, I'm telling I can't you. do that. No? I, 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 the Tom Fours is the way to go. All right. Uh, but yeah. <laughs> and like, I've had these lenses like replace every time I go to the optometrist. I have the replay because I scratch them all the time. And now the, finally the side of the frame just gave away and it's just busted. Did you tape it together? I do. Well, I use gaff tape, of course. Of course. I'm a cinematographer, so yes. gaff tape is my first immediate reaction is to fix anything in my apartment, in my life, whatever. It, it, it. I thought it would work for relationships, but it doesn't. No. <clears throat> you can't just gaff tape a relationship. You can't. <laughs> relationship. No duct tape. No gaff tape. There's no. Yeah. Here we go with the rest of the letter. At the bottom of page two. We would always say to each other, "Happy twenty third. It was a reminder of the day we met. It was April 23rd, 1962. I was in the passenger seat of Dave Lufkin's father's car. Dave was driving. 
Dave's father was a volunteer fireman with the Arlington, Pennsylvania Fire Department. Naturally, Grandpa, this is my father's father, Grandpa was a real fireman with the Philadelphia Fire Department. We pulled into the hot shop, curb service, in Abington. We got something to eat. I forgot what it was. At the hot shop, they had curbside service back in the 60s. So for anyone that's been living with coronavirus, a.k.a. everyone, they've been doing curbside service a long time, Mm -hmm. apparently. Apparently. We got something to eat. I forgot what it was. A few minutes later, a green Volkswagen pulled in next to us. Pamela Brady was driving. Ann Seidel was in the passenger seat. In the back was Mommy. Her blonde hair was pulled back the way she always wore it. She was wearing sunglasses and was quiet. These three girls were called the Troika, and and all were in the same class at Sicilian Academy. Pam's Pam Brady's father was a stockbroker. Ann Seidel's father was a doctor. I couldn't take my eyes off Mommy. When everyone was exchanging names, all I saw was her. I said to her, hey, you in the back seat, what's your name? In true mommy fashion, she pulled the sunglasses off the ridge of her nose, looked over them at me, and said, Noreen, what's yours? Note, Ann Seidel went to California and married a doctor. Pamela Pam Brady went to Long Beach, Long Beach Island in New Jersey and married a builder. I presume both these girls are remarried and living somewhere else. These, quote, friends of mommies were professional gold diggers from wealthy families. Good to know. <clears throat> Continued. Well, after that, after that time, we were inseparable for the rest of our lives. Huh. Uh, okay. Well, well the Funny. rest of her life. Funny. I think whenever we went to the hot shop, the only thing we ordered on the menu was, quote, a teen twist sandwich and a chocolate milkshake. We dated only each other. We went everywhere together. Mommy went everywhere with my family. I went everywhere with Nana and Pop-Pop. I asked Mommy to marry me in, in 1965. I bought her an engagement ring. We saved, her, we saved our money, and we married on June 1st, 1968, in the downstairs, quote, poor person's church. We were fortunate to have a place to stay. It was 4012-4012 Conshohocken Avenue, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, 19151. We moved into our first and only apartment above my Aunt Sarah's, Grandpa's sister. Now note, I remember meeting my Aunt Sarah, and she, I think it was Mary and Sarah. And I met them when I was obviously a little kid when we would go back to Philadelphia. And I remember, I think they had, one of them had Alzheimer's or something. I don't know. If that happens and I start experiencing symptoms of Alzheimer's, Brenda, yep. you have my permission to take me out to pastor and shoot me. Okay. I won't remember anyways. That's true. I'll be like, where are we? Oh, look, pretty. And I'll wake, <laughs> up, a, I'll wake up a lotus. Look at the pretty flowers. I'll w- wake up and I'll be reincarnated as a lotus. Okay. Maybe. Well, I don't know. But we're not going to get into afterlife conversations. <laughs> Grandpa really helped us get the apartment. It had been occupied, but my aunt vacated the the uh, the other people for us. Grandpa helped us repaint and fix it up. It was a duplex. Aunt Sarah on the first floor, Mommy and I upstairs on the second floor. We paid $100 a month in rent, utilities included, from June 1st, 1968 until October 1978 when we left for Pensacola. Vista Del Mar, 1333 Johnson Beach Road, Pensacola, Florida, apartment 317. It was only about 750 square feet with a balcony. We used to barbecue on a little hibachi. Wait, 
I'm confused. Was the apartment in Pensacola, Florida, 750 square feet or the, uh, that they moved to or the apartment in Pennsylvania? Because he says it was only about 750 square feet. Now, I live in a, what I consider to be like a massive apartment and I'm probably like 850 square feet. Wouldn't you say? Something yeah. like that? Probably. 750 square feet. Well, at least in Los Angeles is a pretty big apartment. Um, this is Philadelphia, but uh, you know, only... I think that's a pretty good size part. It was only about 750 square feet with a balcony. We used to barbecue on a little hibachi. Had a garage and did our laundry in the basement. So it had laundry built in. Look at this. Wow. It was a great spot for school communities, work, and easy access to our parents. I would walk to an ice cream place a block away called Scooperman's and get mommy vanilla hot fudge every sun- Sunday every week. Mommy and I hun- honeymooned in Bermuda, but not the year we were married. We did it a year later because we had no money. When we went that year, Nana and Pop-Pop came with us to take a vacation. So that would be my mother's parents. I think I sent you some of the Polaroids a few years ago. Mommy and me in the, sh- in the Stockdale, etc. We never had a good camera until we left for Pensacola. Nana put some money in a bank and they, and they gave her a 35 millimeter camera that she gave to us. It took great pictures. And I think I still have this 35 millimeter camera. Oh, Nice. Because it was my mother's, but I maybe this is the camera. Hold on, should we do? Should I go grab it? Yeah, I'll go grab it. We're gonna put a little pause. So this is actually the first camera that I ever used. It's a thirty-five millimeter Yashica, and as everyone knows, I love my cameras. But we'll show it to everyone. But this was my mother's. I knew specifically. My mom was also into Polaroids, so I have some old Polaroids too. But yeah, this is how I learned to take photos. Way back in the day, it looks like the battery is like oozed over. Anyways, back to the letter. In case you may start to wonder how and why is my father with this number stuff? It's just my brain, I suppose. But here is an interesting tidbit for you. Remember the alarm panel at the door of our kitchen? To set the alarm code was blank. To release the alarm code was blank. The address of our first place. No one knew these numbers except the alarm company because we had to supply them. We had to supply the codes to them in case of an emergency. Later, I found out the guy who owned the alarm company was a friend of Messmore's. More about that later. So he's referring to Dave Messmore, right. the police detective, the head detective in the case that cracked the case and arrested my father. Um, also, alarm companies, I believe, do under a subpoena or you know, uh, warrant have to give up the alarm codes to people's houses. Pretty sure. Yeah. So I don't know what the connection is. I mean, Mansfield is a small town. So like everybody knows everyone. Right. So everyone could technically be friends for, with everyone else. So I don't know what my father's alluding to here, but we're going to find out because he's going to probably use this as some sort of excuse on why he got caught. And it's not going to be because he did it. It's going to be because there's a conspiracy. Right. Conspiracy man. (laughs) We were married for 10 years before God blessed us with you. Really? Mm. We tried and tried, but no conception. You remember I told you how mommy and I always talked a lot about kids, about a lot of kids, etc. Barry and Blouser were part of that family of ours. I helped deliver you at BMH, Bryn Mawr Hospital. I remember being handed you, taking you to the incubator and cleaning you up, then wrapping you in a towel and presenting you to mommy. She and I were filled with joy and happiness and tears. We both had waited so long for you to come to us. No bumper. 
you were loved while you were in God's pocket, have been loved by us the day you arrived. There was never any other way of thinking for us. The bottom line is that we worked our butts off to make a decent living and succeed for you. We put everything in your name. You and mommy were the beneficiaries of my life insurance policies. Mayer and his cronies found a target to get fat on. Do you know there were a total of 11 Mansfield lawyers involved with my conviction? An attorney for this, another one for that. Mimi and Ragu had to hire a Mansfield attorney to protect you. Carol hired a Mansfield attorney to protect your interest. CJ and Gail hired a Mansfield attorney to protect your interest. It was like a feeding frenzy. Every attorney was after the money he could extract from the estate or our family. Mayer was such a crook. Now, he's referring to Jim Mayer, who is the prosecutor. Mayer was such a crook that he tried to subpoena the money CJ had put aside for you from your birth. It was in his account in Virginia reserved for you. Mayer subpoenaed the account and took the money. Such crap. Charlie Robinson, my father's attorney, took my Rolex Submariner watch, which was inscribed Bumper 1978, and had my initials JB, JFB on the band clasp. These, quote, good people of Mansfield stole everything they could carry. I already told you about our house and who lives in it. The parents of, the, of a Mansfield attorney who bought it at a sheriff's sale for $36,000. The article and picture I sent you a year or so ago showed our furniture there and some of mommy's personal items on the shelf over the fireplace. All bloodsuckers. I'll touch on all of this as soon as all of this as I proceed, but Mansfield is well past the corrupt stage. It is the proverbial Sodom and Gomorrah. So I'm just going to take a few notes just mm. to sort of correct some of these um, hyperbole. Okay. Right? Hyperbole. Um, so first of all, yes, my father is correct. There was a ton of lawyers involved. Um, and yes, most of them were crooks. I'm not going to lie about that. I, when I turned 18, sued these lawyers because they had no accountability for any of the stuff that was like my family heirlooms and stuff. And I spent a lot of money and suing these guys and lost, lost my ass in court because we could not get a change of venue to another county. And the judge that was presiding over the case is the same judge that appointed the lawyers. Wow. So I lost... A ton of money, um, like almost my entire, like pretty much like close to a good amount of my entire inheritance was sucked up by these bloodsuckers on many. It just was. And I remember even like a few years later after all that, I was living in Florida and I found this like, um, I found this like unclaimed funds mm -hmm. in the state of Ohio. Right. I was like doing an internet search and I found these unclaimed funds. It was like $2,600 that was in my name and it was unclaimed funds. And I called the department and I arranged for it. And like, I was like waiting tables and you know, $2,600 is a lot of money. I mean, yeah. It still is, but especially then. And I said, I was going to get the money, right? They were going to send it to me because it was my money. Right. <laughs> it was my money in my name. Well, the lawyer who was the lawyer for the estate got wind of this, stopped, redirected the payment to himself, had his office contact me. He took his legal fee collections of $800 out of that 2600 and then split that money with my sister, who I hadn't seen at that point for at least 12 years, um, and kept that money. He probably put it in his own pocket, honestly, and then sent me like, a check for six hundred dollars. 
Oh, wow. Yeah. These people were such crooks. It's like not even funny. So my father is right about that because that's, that's 100% the truth. These people are crooks. And I can name that. But anyways, these people are crooks. The, the lawyers that were involved in this whole thing, it was like a feeding frenzy. They gave me three hours to get stuff out of my house when I was a kid. I, you know, of course, spent the first hour and a half like looking at my toys that I hadn't seen in about six months and wondering about my dog and dealing with the whole fact that I am back in my house. But I was there when they were doing inventories and everything, and I, I ended up taking these people to court, and they all lied and said we never did an inventory of the house, yada, yada. It was just... It was probably one of the most horrific things of my life, for sure. It was just adding insult to injury, and they just had their hands out. They just took more and more money, and I had to hire a specialized lawyer that had to come in that knew that. I mean, it just—it was such a fiasco. We're going to talk about that on another episode, but it was a one hundred percent fiasco. And then people thought like I got—I inherited like millions of dollars and all this stuff. No, I mean there might have been that kind of money, and it went into people's pockets, but not yours, not mine. So, what about the comment that he made about? things of your mom still being in the house now in that photograph that these people bought the house i don't know um, is the house still in the same well yeah i mean we're, we go into the house in murder in mansfield and these people had bought it that i didn't i wasn't like scoping the place out but i didn't see anything oh, okay so, so maybe it was long gone i don't know and there was an auction and people did buy stuff in fact my adopted parents had bought stuff that they gave me after I was adopted, which was really cool to have. Oh, that's really nice of them. Yeah, it was. I have this really cool ship's model in glass that's really, really old. And uh, a wonderful ex-girlfriend that I broke up with destroyed it before oh. she gave it back to me. So it's like in pieces, but it's in a box. And I need to, when I get the funds one day, take it to like an antique restaurant. I was going to say, get out the super glue. Uh, no, <laughs> not get out the super glue. Like replace the glass because it's like old glass. It's like for, you know, over 100 years old. It's really cool. But wow. anyways, people do destructive things in relationships. That's for sure. Uh, it's too bad. So, yeah, he's right about a little bit of that. Um, as far as him saying prosecuting attorney James J. Mayer Jr. was a crook. I mean, my experience with Jim, God rest his soul, was not that. And he had nothing to do with that. He was a criminal district attorney, not a probate person. So he had nothing to do with these lawyers. I mean, other than the fact that professionally, a lot of these people knew each other because it's a small town and you know people. I mean, people, lawyers in Los Angeles all know each other. Right. You know, I've been to court and been like, oh, this lawyer knows this lawyer and this, that and the other. So it's not like it's uncommon that lawyers know other lawyers. I mean, I know other cinematographers and I am cahoots with them to like, you know, <laughs> right. rig the, rig the DP world. We're going to. We're going to get those people. We're going to corner the market on lenses. We're yeah, going to take it over. Get, yeah. Yeah. Not so much. So, uh, yeah, a little bit of fantasy indulgent. Like, the, again, this is him planting these seeds of, you know, doubt or, oh, the framing. Because for a long time, you know, his, his defense was he was framed. He didn't commit the murder, yada, yada. I mean, as he says, in the, you know, when he's talking about my mom, he says, you know, uh, well, after that time, we were inseparable for the rest of our lives. Hmm. It's just, it's just so bizarre. And really, even after, because he buried her in the basement of his new house. She was going to be with him forever. Look forever. at that. Forever. Look at that. Yeah. Uh-huh. It's, uh, it's amazing. So romantic. I wanted to be a doctor from the time I was a little boy. Grammy, his, his mother, my grandmother would always tell me stories about, about what I did as a small child, bringing home sick birds I found or small animals I found, a pocket full of worms, bugs, flowers, frogs, etc. You name it, I tried to heal it. 
more on this later. Now, my grandmother did tell me that, and I kind of I knew that growing up. I also <laughs> would come home with worms in my pocket and bugs. I wasn't trying to heal them. I think I was just trying to like keep them as my friends. I'm sorry, worms in your pocket. I oh, worms, I don't bugs. Think that's I had bugs. Going to turn out well. I had bugs. I had oh, I was yeah. My poor mother. It's just, I had little yeah. <laughs> it's like what is this exactly? Um, that would be bug mush. Yeah. Oh, I'm sure. Stink bugs. That was always fun when they got loose in the, loose in the house. Oh no. I remember one time my mom's friend was from Texas and she went to Texas and had, and had found a dead scorpion and brought it back because I was obsessed with scorpions in a box, but it was dead. But then like I was playing with the box and I lost it, but it was dark in the house and my mom and I were freaked out because we thought it was alive and it was, run- oh, and oh just, no, 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 I'm out on that one. And these are the things that when I think about having children, I go, mm, yeah, mm. Probably not because uh, that don't you get like twice as worse when you have kids? Isn't that what they say? That's what they say. So I must have been an angel because my kid's pretty good. Just saying. Okay, so I guess that isn't true. <laughs> I guess that's a that's an old wives' tale right there. We've just cleared the air on that one, guys. Now you know it's all bull. Horse pucky. Yeah, you're over there doing like some mascara things and some. Yeah, there was a, a girl who did a YouTube video. Uh, she does a, like, talks about murderers and does her Oh, makeup. yeah, the murder makeup chick. Yeah. Oh, my gosh, she's so good. She's got three million followers. I'm a little jelly, so I'm over here, like, living, you know, kind of Yeah, in my she own does makeup, world. and then there's another girl that, like, cooks and, and does themes. Oh, yeah, no, it's, yeah. That's pretty cool. Freaking YouTube is crazy. It is crazy. Anyways, let's get back to it. The only other thing I can recall that I wanted to do was become was was be the only other thing I can recall that I wanted to do was be a concert pianist. Nothing else that I can remember. Mimi plays the piano, Grandpa played the violin, Grammy's father, Dominic Patricio, played the mandolin, Raja plays the violin, and Chrissy plays the violin. Chrissy is my Raja is my cousin, who is my father's sister's son he's about six months older than me eight months older than me and then chrissy is my um half sister which was born 14 days before my father or 12 days before my father was arrested who recently got married and who lost my invitation mm-hmm. i already gave some information on family deaths illnesses etc but the bottom line is that there are no hereditary illnesses no cancers no diabetes no high blood pressures no mental diseases no blood diseases Our family has been blessed with good health and longevity. Oh, we do have the hard work gene. Occupational exposures like grandpop's mesothelioma does not count as it was an occupational disease. Yes, there was another speculation about mommy at the time of her death, but it is speculation as far as I'm concerned and and I will not speculate on it. So I don't know what that is. Maybe it was a heart thing. Her mother had a heart thing. Um, But my my nana, her mother was a long, like a lifetime cigarette smoker. In fact, she, when my mother wasn't looking, would let me sneak a drag off her cigarettes. Oh, Nana. Oh, Nana. Bad girl, I'm pretty sure she was like drinking, um, what is that terrible tasting alcohol that people pay a lot of money for? Scotch. Yeah. I think she drank scotch. Now, I've had scotch and I've had way too many scotch, way too much scotch on occasion, but uh, it's disgusting. Oh, the fun days. I will close this up for now and start another letter tomorrow. At least I can tell you about our family. This whole nightmare has caused me to be angry. 
angry with myself for being duped by the crooks in Mansfield. I am not seeking revenge. I have always had the ability to make money, and I know I will do the same again when I am out of here. I seek no revenge against anyone. I will find out the answers I am seeking, but I am not vengeful after anyone. That's God's business, not mine. My motto is, quote, living well is the best revenge. I intend to live very, very well. More tomorrow. Love and miss you bundles and bundles. Keep those questions coming. Stay safe and alert as always. XXOOO, your dad. Wow. A lot. Yeah. A lot there in this letter. And he's going to make lots of money when he gets out. Um, and I just pictured him at the farmer's market selling bread. I don't know why. Bread. Interesting. Yeah. Don't they have like an inmate's like ex-convict kind of I don't know. I mean, program? here's the signature though. There's your dad. Um. Well, now, so that was written in August of 2007. So lots to talk about that. That last, again, this last thing, you know, uh, you know, this whole nightmare has caused me to be angry, angry with myself for being duped by the crooks in Mansfield. So, you know, again, he's insinuating that, you know, he's, I mean, this has been the staple of his entire life in prison is that, you know, he was framed. So, I mean, that's why I'm, I'm presuming he's discussed, he's, referring to when he says being duped by the crooks in Mansfield. So who exactly framed him? Has he ever said who he thinks it was? I don't know. I mean, I'm sure he's put it in a letter. I don't remember. I think that it was a, a conspiracy between his mistress, her uncle, um, his lawyers, Dave Messmore, his, our neighbor who was in the sheriff's department. It was like a con. It was a, 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 um, what is the word? A concentrated effort of all of these individuals coming together to say, we're going to get Dr. Jack Boyle. So and here's what we're going to do. He's saying his mistress was part of it. I, I don't know. Like oh. I just am trying to remember over the years of the, it, there was many people that were all involved in this whole thing. And he was very angry with lots of people. And there was moments in these letters when he would talk about her and her uncle that he was going into business with that, in Erie, Pennsylvania, all these things. There's a lot of that type of stuff um, that was happening. So I don't know really who he's specifically angry with. I do know it's me well, yeah. <laughs> because, you know, obviously we read sort of his retaliation to how upset he was for me not coming forward to the parole board for his second parole hearing. Right. Or saying that I, sent them a videogram or something, which is just not true. I just didn't do any of that. Um, yeah. You just abstained. Dad, you have nobody to be angry at but yourself because you murdered my mother and you know it. And sadly, you can't admit it to yourself or others. I mean, I know he has because I've, I've been made privy to certain things that he has admitted. And But it was always like under the veil of like, I was responsible for her death because I pushed her. And then it's just always just, it's just bad. It's all bad. But then is he saying that he did not bury her in that house? No, he's never said that. I think when you're dealing with somebody who's a sociopath, and and I've discussed this before when we were talking, you have to be like really specific about questions and answers because they're, as you can tell from this letter, like he remembers times, dates, and honestly, 
to be quite honest with you, like I do remember the alarm codes because mm-hmm. I remember numbers and things like that. I mean, you know this. You're always right. saying you remember everything. I'm like, you oh, my do. God. Um, I just have. So I do believe that because I, I know it's true because those were the alarm codes that we had, and <laughs> which some of them I still use. Um, but he. Uh, so I don't doubt that. So I think his detention to detail with these dates and, you know, April 23rd, 1962. I don't remember what we I believe all that. Right. I believe like the basic generalization of facts. Like I met her on this date. This was the color of the car. This is who she's with. This is what she did. This is how this happened. This. And then there's these, uh, there, then there's a bit of soliloquy. Like we spent all these waking moments together. We were faithful to each other. We knew that she, they weren't faithful, that she, he wasn't faithful to her. I, right. I know this. Like right. my mother talked about it and my relatives that did speak to me, prior to making a murder in Mansfield confirmed all this like, Oh yeah. And my mom coming to the house and being like, where's Jack? And they're like, I don't know. Cause he was off with some other woman and they were like getting ready to get married. It was like craziness. Oh, so wow. this is what it is. So there's a lot of solilo- soliloquy. Is that the right sort of term to use? I think so. Creative liberties, romanticizing, fantasizing, whatever you want to call it. Uh, yeah, there's just a lot here that there's the basic facts that exist in the structure, right? right? Time, date, people, places, things. Yes. Who, what, when, where, why, how. Then there's all the filler that you have with this shit, right? So he fills it in with all this bullshit, essentially. Right. And this is how he composes the story that tells, you know, that, that tells the narrative that structures the narrative that he wants to tell you. Right. Right. So this is what sociopaths do and narcissists and people that are manipulative. They just, because this is what makes it hard to refute them. And they know this. If you have specific details of instances in an argument, right. And look, I'm not a criminologist or a lie detector person or whatever, but it is known. And I think a lot of people will agree. You've seen this in your own lives where People who are trying to lie and manipulate, what they do is they use specific dates and times and facts, right? Right. Like I said, the who, what, when, where, why, how, right? And then they build a narrative around it. But you're like, and then you as a, as a person, you know, because we as human beings are natural empaths, right? We're always trying to understand. They go, well, well, he got the date right. And he knows it was in the morning at around 10 o'clock. And we just, so then it must be true because you're doubting yourself, right? Because they're so convincing because they're manipulating you. Yes. So you have these moments where you're, you know, trying to figure this out. Right. And, um, it ends up, you end up buying into their narrative that they've constructed, but really it's just a sort of an elaborate scheme, if you will, mm-hmm. to, to make them feel like they are successfully manipulating you and manipulating the truth. And then therefore that manipulation of the truth becomes the truth. Right. Because you then, by accepting that version of the truth that they have constructed with this narrative, in your innocent just trying to understand what the frick is going on, right? Right. You're just trying to be like, you know, what is happening? Because you feel like you're being turned upside down and sideways by their words. But once you go, okay, or you accept their story as what might be true. Now, maybe deep down inside you don't, but you're just like, I can't, I'm so exhausted by this rhetoric this banter this just debate about this stuff that i just accept it but i don't really accept it but then that 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 in their mind turns sets it in stone that that is therefore like gospel that is bible now it's this and that that's the truth 
Right. And then they use that to be like, well, you agreed with me on this and this. Well, that, because you know that's true, right? And that's what they do. And that's what these, that's what makes all of this. So, I mean, that I think is a, is a very extreme case of gaslighting. That's an extreme example of gaslighting, but that's how they do it. They literally construct the narrative using facts, which make your, your, your reason and judgment go, oh, okay, this, this makes sense to right. me. Oh, they must be right about everything else in this particular story. You know, this it's a compartment because they're putting everything in it. They're compartmentalizing and they put it on the shelf. Okay, that that story is this. Boom, put it on the shelf. That's what, boom, because that's what they do. And that's that's their manipulation. And it's insidious. And this is a classic example of this. Because there's facts and then there's liberties taken around those facts to make this a, a narrative. And then it ends with, again, him saying, oh, this whole nightmare, I'm upset for being duped by these crooks. Well, no, you murdered my mother. You were having a baby with your mistress. Like nobody made you do that. You bought a house and buried her underneath the basement floor. Whether you were aided in that or not, you are the one that did it. We know that. How is that being duped by anyone? Dupe that you made it. What did he make a deal with the police department saying, I'm going to kill my wife, but don't tell anyone. <laughs> right. Is that what it was? Is that what you're alluding mm. to? Like, this is insane. But this is again classic manipulation, classic gaslighting. And it, for years, I mean, the sad thing is for years, like I, because you don't want to believe your father is this horrible, insidious human being. Right. Despite evidence to the contrary. But for years I lived with this under this guise of just, and not that I even believed this bullshit, but I just wanted to believe it. I wanted to really, I wanted to really believe him because I, I didn't want to think that this is so horror. This, this is such a monster and whatnot. But at the end of the day, you can't because it's all bullshit. <laughs> yeah. But it takes, but when you're being gaslighted or gaslit or when someone is gaslighting you like this, and this is such an egregious example, the manipulation is so extreme that it causes you to rethink your whole what it is that's what they want that's what he wants he wants you to believe his narrative because at the end you know because three years from now he's going to be up for parole so he's trying to manipulate me to get me on his side and he's starting very early i mean he started years before this but he's really trying to do that and like you see in the scene for those who have seen my documentary on murder in mansfield on investigation discovery discovery plus there's a little plug for you there's the scene when i confront my father in prison and he comes into the room and he's in a really good mood and he because he literally thinks that I am making a documentary to help him get out of prison. Which is baffling. <laughs> and as soon as I say to him, and this is what I said when Dr. Phil was interviewing me on his show, I, when I say, you know, ever since you murdered my mother, that's when like all the air gets sucked out of the room and you can see his face just completely change. On camera, right there in the moment. So, yeah, it's very interesting. I wonder if he thought you were going to say something like you were incarcerated, you know, unjustly or something. And like, who you knows? Were, you know, we're going to make this about how, you know, he was innocent but put in prison. Maybe. I mean, that's just so beyond delusional, but I, I'm sure. I mean, Which, it doesn't make any sense because you testified against him. Yeah. Oh, no, but it doesn't have to make sense to them. That's the no. thing that's crazy. Anyways, um, I'm Collier Landry. And I'm Brenda Fisher. And this is Moving Past Murder. Thanks, y'all.
For more information, please visit movingpastmurder.com or mpmpodcast.com. The film A Murder in Mansia is available on Investigation Discovery, Hulu, and Amazon Prime Video. This podcast is a production of Don't Touch My Radio in association with RSA Entertainment.